invite you to take your scriptures and turn back to Psalm 63. There's a Harrison Ford movie back in the day, 1993, and the title of the movie was called The Fugitive. And uh, Harrison Ford played Dr. Richard Kimball, who was unjustly accused of murdering his own wife. And the whole show is about him running for his life, really, and also at the same time trying to find the real killer who actually killed his wife. He was a target of a nationwide manhunt that was led by a very seasoned U.S. marshal that was right on his tail the whole entire time. It was basically what we'd call a pretty amazing thriller. I thought of that, and I thought King David and his life had experienced the very same thing. Twice in his life, he was a fugitive. At one point before he became king, he was on the run um, from Saul, who was jealous of David and wanted to take his life. And then after he became king, he was again, another time he was a fugitive on the run, and uh, this time from Absalom. Uh, And they were really thrillers in their own, but you know, it's not thrilling when you're going through it. Uh, And then that's what Psalm 63 is about. The title of the psalm is when David was in the wilderness of Judea. And most of the commentators think that this is the occurrence. This is when he's running from Absalom. He's been king for quite a while. His son is a grown adult. He's rebelled against his father. And now he's attacking his father, taking over Jerusalem, and trying to see that his own father is killed. You know, it's not the only story like that in the Old Testament. There are numerous uh, vignettes given to us about people who were targeted, people that were being hunted down or people that were on the run. Hagar was running from Sarah, and Joseph was running from Potiphar's wife, Jacob from Esau, Moses from Pharaoh, Elijah from Jezebel. I mean, there are a lot of thrillers or stories like that in the Bible. But as I just said, they're not thrillers when you're going through it. In fact, some of you could agree with that quite readily because maybe this morning you're going through that. You're running from something in your life that has got you scared, things that are threatening what life you thought you had. And some of you could write a Psalm 63 version of your own, could you not? I mean, you have had wilderness experiences, are having wilderness experiences. In fact, there are some on the run this morning. You're running from things. The question is, how are you doing in your wilderness you know, King David in Psalm 63, here's what he wants to do. He wants, us to t- he wants to teach us, and he's going to open his personal wilderness survival manual in order to give us a few lessons about how when you're in the wilderness and when you're on, your run, on the run, what you can do. So let me start off with this main idea. When you're on the run from Absalom's in your life, here's what David would say, run to God. When you're running from these things, run to God. When Something or someone pushes you into the wilderness, let it also push you to God. So let's look at David's life, and it's a pretty simple text in my opinion. The first eight verses are how David runs to God from a vertical perspective. And I'm going to make a little bit out of that toward the end. And then the last three verses, verses 9 through 11, are how David runs to God and how that works out in his perspective on his circumstance, the horizontal things that are going on around him. So let's unpack them one at a time. Can we do that? So how do you 
in your wilderness times. When someone is pursuing you, when things are coming your way, troubles that you can't seem to fend off or have the answer to, what do you do to run to God? Here's the first thing David does. He desires God. David desires God. See, look at the text. Verse 1 and then down to verse 11 because God is mentioned in the two verses that frame out and bracket this text because this is a text about God in your wilderness. It starts with, in verse 1, David begins with God. Oh God, my God. And then at the end of it, he sums it all up and says, in God, in verse 11. Because here's what he wants you to know. The most crucial thing in your wilderness, when you're on the run, the most crucial thing is this, that you desire God. See, in the wilderness, David's being hunted down. He's on the run And you could almost say that he's lost just about everything that was dear to him. He's lost his kingdom. He has lost his people. He has lost his throne. He has lost his family. And he doesn't know yet, but he's about perhaps to lose his life. But you know what I find as I read this psalm over and over again this week? There is not one single request in this psalm. And that, to me, based on his circumstances, is pretty amazing. Because if I was writing this psalm, here's how I would start it. Would you do the same? Oh, God, my God, get me out of this. <laughs> would that, I, I would start with a request. And there would be a lot more of them to follow. And now watch. It's not wrong to do that because there's another psalm, Psalm 3, where David records the same event when he's running from Absalom. And in that Psalm 3, verse 7, he does ask God for basically that. So it's not wrong when you're running and you're in the wilderness and you need help. It's not wrong to ask for it. But the point is this. This psalm, 63 in comparison to Psalm 3, emphasizes something completely different. The requests are left out. And the reason is this, is that more than what God can do for him, David wants God himself. So he says, O God, my God, my God who has a covenant relationship with me, the God who has made it possible for me to know him. And in fact, this little phrase filled with emotion, O God, is used almost a hundred times in the Psalms. And it expresses his intense desire. It's his passion. See, what David wants most of all in the wilderness is God. Look at the pronouns in verses 1 through 4. Let me just read them off in little staccato sentences. Ready? I seek you, you God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So I've looked upon you, your power, your glory, your steadfast love. My lip will pray, pr- lips will praise you, your name. Do you see what he's saying? God, here's what I need. Listen, I'm not looking around, but I know what's going on, and here's what I need most. I need you. Let me say it to you this way. All of David wants all of God. What do you mean, Pastor Walker? Well, look at the text. He says, and he talks about himself, my flesh My eyes, when he looks, my lips, my hands. But see, it's not some external thing that he says, oh, you know, I probably should do this. I'm a, you know, I'm a believer. I should seek. No, it's not that. He says this, my flesh, my eyes, my lips, my hands. And then he says three times in verses one, five, and eight, my soul. See, on the outside, he wants God. On the inside, he wants God. His entire being is crying out for God. 
It's a holistic desire. It's not just for show. It's not to impress people how spiritual he is. This is what David wants. And that's why there are no requests. Because David doesn't, like we too often do, he doesn't desire God and. He desires God, period. See, David isn't seeking God and his gifts. He's seeking God as his gift. See, let me say a little bit more. Not only is all of David wanting all of God, but all of David wants all of God all the time. Did you see it in the text? It starts out this way, earnestly. King James says, early, early will I seek you. It's not really a translated Hebrew word. It's just kind of a word to help us to understand what he's thinking. And so whether it's early or earnestly, it really is not a big deal. You know why? Because the point is, the first thing on his mind, what constantly is on his mind throughout the day from the very start of it is, God, I need you. God, I want you in my life. And then he says in verse 6, it's not only the first thing or the thing I want more often than anything else. He says, but at nighttime, in the night watches, when I'm on my bed, do you see what he's saying? I want all of me, inside and out, wants you. And how often do I want it? Well, I want it in the day, I want it in the afternoon, and I want it at night. Because here's what David recognizes that you and I so often forget. Just how much we depend on God. Just how much we really need him. See, I would say it this way. These first few verses just indicate to me that God is at the center of David's life. You might say, Pastor Walker, how do you know? How does somebody know if God's really the center? Maybe they pushed him out to the periphery. Maybe he's out on the margins of their life. How do I know if he's the center? Here's the test. Ready? It's at least one of them. God's the center of your life when you desire him supremely, no matter what the circumstances are. See, he says to God, verse 3, your steadfast love, your chesed, is better than life. Hear that. It's a comparison. So how would you measure? How would you measure it? God, I love you supremely. How would I know? Because he's better, and we start comparing things. David is saying, God, you're better than my kingdom, which I've lost. You are better than my wives, which my son has taken. You are better than the throne. You're better than the security and the prosperity that comes from it. You're better than having my own son, who he loves, Absalom, Absalom, oh my. He loves Absalom, but Absalom didn't love him back. He says, and and in his mind, he's thinking, God, you're better than all of these things. In fact, he goes so far as to say, You're actually better than life itself. Have you ever considered this morning that some of us as God's people, we struggle in the wilderness, and the reason is it's because God's really not at the center. Oh, we give him an hour, don't we, on Sunday morning? But all, can you say this? All of me wants all of God all the time. Now let me be frank with you. The answer for all of us, including me, is no. We do not, if we're honest, we don't want all all of us, all of ourselves, we don't want him all the time. We don't. Because we're sinners and we're selfish, right? But here's the point. It is the pattern of David's life. 
There are certainly obvious times in his life where it wasn't true. But what was true of him in a patterned way and why he writes this psalm is that, God, I'm moving in that way. I want you to be the center of my life. But here's the danger, as it was for David, it is for us, is that we too often fill the center of our lives, especially in wilderness times, with what I call God substitutes. Instead of looking above, like David did, we look around. David says, you know what, God? I needed you, and I needed you to be in my life, and I needed to give you the supreme affection of my heart. And he says, I looked, verse 2, upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. See, he didn't look around. He looked above because David desired God. Verse 5, he wanted to be satisfied in God. When he was hungry and thirsty and parched, he looked to God, and God was his appetite. It's what he hungered for and thirsted for. And I read a book this week. It talked about the appetite principle. And the principle said this, whatever you want most is what you worship most. Whatever in your most difficult times that you are most hungry for and most thirsty for is what you're really all about, what's really at the center of your life. And so Jesus says this admonition to those who would follow him. John 6, 27, don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. A few verses down, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, double negative, and shall never thirst, double negative, never, ever. Jesus is saying, listen, you want true and lasting happiness and satisfaction in the midst of your wilderness? You must come to me for it. I have come to the realization that if you have no appetite, which... I, don't, I keep joking around, but I'm not sure if I've ever experienced that. But if you don't have any ap- appetite, it's because of two things. You're either sick or you've already filled up with something. My mom used to say to us when we were having dinner, and it was about a half hour away, she'd say, now don't be eating that. I'd grab a bag of chips. Don't be eating that stuff. You know, you've heard this, right? Why? Why aren't you supposed to be eating that stuff? Don't fill up on things. Dinner is just about to happen, my mom would tell me. And so I, she, go, she would say, no snacks. You can't have those. We have dinner coming up. You don't want to fill up on that stuff, my mom would say. And so appetizers weren't part of our deal at our house. You didn't get to have snacks beforehand. And I was told even in the restaurant, don't drink all that soda because you're going to drink two sodas and before you're di- and then I paid for all this, right? What fills you up? When you're running on empty, see, it's the appetite principle. We need to watch out, don't we? We need to watch out for things that will spoil our appetite for God. Snacks can ruin your spiritual appetite. And see, snacks, can I say it to you, spiritual snacks? They're not always bad things. Sometimes they can be good things if used proportionately and rightly. Books, even video games. Money is a necessity, right? People, our wives, our children, being productive at your job, being a success, even using social media. None of them are inherently evil. But see, if we're constantly snacking on them and constantly using those as our appetizer and we get filled up on those things, see, we don't have God as our main appetite. He's not really 
who and what we hunger for and thirst for the most. And we put substitutes in its place. Sometimes the substitutes are bad. Sometimes they are sexual immorality, alcohol, lust, love of power. I mean, those are more obvious. Satisfaction substitutes can take any shape or form in our lives. Anything that comes ahead of or we love and is satisfied more than what God is for us in Jesus Christ. David desires God and he delights in God because he loves God supremely. What do you want, listen, what do you want more than anything in the world this morning? Be honest. What do you want, not what you need to say you should want in church, but what do you really want more than anything else? Because that is this expression of what you really worship. I found in reading this psalm and in my life that no matter what the pressures are, whatever they come into your life, you will only be able to handle them successfully when you have the appetite principle down in your life, and that is that God is at the center of your desires and your delights. How, Pastor Walker? How can I do that? Well, here's what the psalmist says. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you. Circle it, because it's going to come up three straight times. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand, your right hand, excuse me. My soul clings to your right hand and has uphold me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. And then he says, for the third time, but the king shall rejoice in God. Did you see it? Three times, verse 5, 7, 11, it was joy. That's how you, how do you keep your joy in God? How do you keep joy in God when you're crying? How do you keep your joy in God when your marriage is on the ropes? How do you keep joy in God when your kids are estranged from God and you don't feel like there's any way that they could come back? How do you keep your joy when the wilderness is so hot so desolate, and you feel so alone. There's a beautiful song, Jesus, You're the Center of My Joy. In verse 2, before I read it, it has three times in it the word when in this verse, and because he's describing wilderness experiences. How do you keep your joy? Listen to the songwriter. When I've lost my direction, you're the compass for my way. You're the fire and light when nights are long and cold. In sadness, you're the laughter that shatters all my fears. When I'm alone, your hand is there to hold me. And the chorus goes, because Jesus, you're the center of my joy. He says, in all that I do, Jesus, you're the center of my joy. You see, David had that. It didn't really matter what was going on around him, even if it was Absalom, his own son, trying to attack him and kill him, even if people had betrayed him, even if he didn't know how the future was going to turn out. Here's what he says. I still choose to have joy in you, but it's not, listen, it's not mechanical. It's not just say, hey, you know what? No matter what, I'm just going to have joy, see? No, 
Jesus, you're the center of my joy. And he says, I can't stop praising you. I can't stop worshiping you. I can't stop. Can you imagine running in the desert and while you run, you, you work up a song? David did. And that song came from his heart because that's what was most important to him. That's what he loved the most. And then he says, God, and here's why I find my joy. And you look at verse 7, the little connector word for Here's why, God, I find so much joy. For you've been my help, my Eliezer, my Ezer in Hebrew. It's, you've been my help. You've been there for me when no one else was. When no one else was, you were there. And then I love the, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Now, oh, the shadow of your wings, it's a beautiful phrase. Four times in the Psalms, only times. And one of them was running from Absalom, and the other one of the four is in Psalm 57 when he was running from Saul because here's what David looked for in the wilderness the shadow of God's wings it was another way of saying his presence it's the source of David's joy in the wilderness and so later he would write Psalm 16 or earlier I should say in your presence is fullness of joy see you can have can you imagine in the most difficult times when you're running on empty you can be filled not just partially, not just a little bit, not a couple drips and drabs, but so full of joy that in the most difficult time in your life, you can burst out in a song and worship God. That's the life he's offering. That's what David is holds out to all of us today, if you know God through Jesus Christ. See, no lasting joy. There is no lasting joy apart from God. You try to distract yourself, go to the store, buy a few things, get a car, buy some clothes, go out to dinner. They won't last. They won't last. It won't bring you lasting and permanent joy. David says you have to find it under the shadow of God's wings. And I love this part. Because when David's in the wilderness, he needs God to be everything for him. And at one point, he says, God, here's what I need from you. Here's what I want. When I look at you, I want to see your transcendence. And so in the one verse, he says, I want to see your glory and your power. God, I went in the sanctuary, and I want to behold how awesome you are. He says, God, your glory and your power, and I need to see that. But later on in the psalm, he says, God, I don't need just to see your transcendence. I need to see your eminence. He says, I need to know that you have wings, like a chicken in a little, you know what I'm saying? God, I need to know that you have hands, that your, your hand is underneath me, upholding me. God, glory and power, absolutely. I need to know that you're stronger than my enemies, that you're, better, you're stronger than my desert experiences, that you can handle anything in my life. But God, I need to know that, that you're just out there somewhere with all that power and might, but you're right here up close in my life. I mean, I can feel your wings over me. God, I can know that your fingers are touching my life. So he says, this is what I hope in. David says in verse 8, my soul clings to you. It's the same word used in marriage of Genesis 2.24, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. God, I want you to be so close to me and our relationship in this wilderness experience, it's like a husband and wife together. God, I need to cling. And then he says, but your right hand, and that's not just your normal, that's your right hand, the hand of your authority and power. God, I want all that you are to come to bear in my life. See, God is personal. He's got wings. 
He's got hands. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? David clinging, can I say it this way? David holds on to God knowing God holds on to David. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? Can I tell you this? Reach out for him this morning. Hold on to him because he's holding on to you. Cling to him because, listen, I found out this psalm teaches me this. Absalom was close, but God was closer. I had, when I was a kid, my parents, we had this country club kind of a place we went to. Not really a country club. It was a pool and a tennis court, so it wasn't really a country club. But we went swimming there. And until I was in 10th grade, I was very, I, I was like five foot three. I was very short, not very, not a lot of weight. Unfortunately, I have that now, but... Um, so I would go to the pool, and these guys would pick on me. I was little. They were big for their age, and so they were trying to always start fights with me, and I could never get away from them. So I, I started to not want to go to the pool anymore. And my parents didn't know why. It was hot outside. It was summer like this. Why don't you want to go to the pool? I didn't want to tell them that I was afraid some kid was going to beat me up until my cousin came. My cousin Robert, he's been up here a couple times, but he was big for his age. No, oh, no, wait. He was really big for his age. I was 5'3". He was almost six foot. And he was big. And so I hadn't gone to the pool in a week or two, but Robert came. And he stepped, and I brought him back from the airport, and he's in the car, and I go, man, you are huge since I saw you last. I know. <laughs> and so, he goes, so, so we go to the, I go, mom, Robert and I are going to the pool. She said, what? They said, yeah, we're going to the pool, right? Because I, I had no fear anymore, right? So I told Robert, hey, Robert, go sit over there, and I'm going to sit over here. He goes, why? I go, just wait. I'll call you when I need you. <laughs> so I wasn't there very long, and these guys came up to pick and shove me in the shoulder, talking trash to me, you know, and I, I acted like I was weak, and then I go, mm. <laughs> Robert comes over, and he goes, what's happening, cuz? I said, nothing anymore, brother. <laughs> and he, over, he and all the guys were going like, oh, yeah, yeah, we got to go. Yeah, sorry, didn't mean anything by that. We're out of here. Under the shadow of his wings. See, they, they were close, but Robert was closer. A few years later, same place. Not the pool, the tennis court. I'm playing with my friend Chris Walter, and we're playing tennis, night under the lights. And all of a sudden rocks, sizable rocks, are coming projectile over the fence. And I thought, wow, someone must have done that first one by accident. But they kept coming, and they were actually getting close to us. And I go, you've got to be kidding me. Who's over on the other side throwing rocks? I said, come on, Chris. So I had, my dad had got me this, I had this little car, little teeny car. And so I get in the car, and Chris goes with me. And I realize I'm a, about a sophomore in high school. I've grown a little bit, but still... There were three guys, I thought. We got in my car, drove around, and they were walking away. And so they're walking away, and I get out of the car first. And, you know, it's this little sports car, real low to the ground. I get out, and I get out, and they go, there's three of them. And they go, what do you want? I go, you guys throwing rocks at us? And they go, yeah, what about it? And I go, this is about it. Oh, Chris? And he gets out of the car. Now, he's 6'6". <laughs> and he's in this car, and it's really low to the ground. So here's how he gets out. And then he stands up like this, and they go, oh, we didn't, really, we didn't know it was you guys throwing rocks over there. They apologized over and over again. I loved it. 
under the shadow of his wings. See, the rocks were close. He was closer. Can I tell you, that's our God. In the worst wilderness experience ever, Jesus is on the cross taking your wilderness and mine. And Hebrews 12.2 says this, that he's the author and finisher of our faith and for the joy that was set before him, the joy, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Endured the cross for the joy. Can I tell you this? Our sin was close. His enemies near the cross were close, but his father was closer. Under the shadow of his wings. See, when David was pursued by Absalom, here's what his choice was. He decided, I'll pursue God. David ran to God vertically, and I'll close with this. Listen. Now, verses 1 through 8, now that he has made God his everything, now that he has seen God for all that he is and wants and desires him, see, now he's ready to look at his circumstances. And that's what he does in verse 9. He says he looked at these people, and here's, they're going to be eaten up by the sword. They're going to be food for jackals, he says. And see verse 9, the little contrast, but in verse 9, and then but in verse 11. See that? He says, these people I was so afraid of, people that were hunting me down, that were take, wanted to destroy my life, he says, I was afraid of them until I started to seek God. See, watch. Here's how you know you're, you're seeking after God and you're thirsting for God and making God the center because David desired God, David delighted in God. Listen, and now God was his defense. But he would never have looked at his circumstances the way that he did if he sought relief from them first. And the order matters. God, my desire. God, my delight. God, my defense. Not the other way around. See, when you're running from Absalom, in your mind, the best thing I can do is keep running, run faster, run harder, run better. God says, you're right, but not from him, but to me. But to me. Isn't it amazing? They're going to fall by the sword, and God is going to be the warrior. Here's David, one of the best warriors in all of history, but he doesn't trust his own sword. He trusts God. He puts it in his hands. And David says this, I can handle those now who want to take my life. You know why? Because God is my life. That's how he can handle it. And then he says, so the king, and by the way, he's not the king when he says it. When he's on the run, he's been, he's been deposed. But he knows God's going to work because he's seen him and he wants him. And he's placed him at the center. And he says, the king shall rejoice, not whether he gets the throne back, but in God. That's the psalm, isn't it? The question for us is, what's the most important question you're asking in your wilderness? Who am I running from? Or who am I running to? Is it God? Is he really the center of your life and your joy? Do you want him and love him and seek him and worship him supremely? Or are you trying to find it in other places? God substitute satisfaction substitute when fullness of joy is offered to you. Would you make him the center of your life today, even in your wilderness? Let's pray.
In just a couple moments, we're going to, Pastor Dave is going to welcome a new family into our membership today as we close. But if you're here this morning, I want you to know, if you've never come to the Lord Jesus, the King, the true King, not only of Israel, but of the world, if you've never seen that he endured the worst wilderness on the cross to pay for your sins and found joy in it because of what it would do for you and how it would glorify God, you can put your trust in him. He's the hunger. that you, you have a hunger that only he can feed. You have a thirst that only he can quench. And only when you put your faith in him and not your good works and not your religion not your self-righteousness, can you ever know that true, lasting, eternal satisfaction? You can do that today. You can call on him to be your savior. Perhaps you're here as a Christian today, and you are in a wilderness. You're on the run. It's rough. Certainly not a thriller. Are you running from it, or have you chosen to run to God? Tell him today, would you? God, I want you to be the center of my joy. I want my satisfaction in you and all that you are for me in Jesus. I'm not there. I'm not where I ought to be. But God, I need to be. I need to move in that direction. If that's the case, with every head bowed and every head closed, would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you as a Christian. I'm in the wilderness, but I need to run to God and make him the center. I really need to have, I want to have him supremely. Thank you. All over balcony, thank you. Father, you've seen hands and hearts. You know the needs of God's people, and you know the needs of those who haven't become your people yet. I pray today by the divine Holy Spirit of God, through your word, that you would use this desert experience of David to drive us to you, that those who raise their hand might find you as their satisfaction. And those who have never come to you by faith, never drank from the living water, have never eaten from the bread of life, that today you would grant them repentance that they might turn their lives completely over to you and know the forgiveness of sins and salvation that is only in your name and will be careful to give you the glory and honor as you alone deserve. For it's in Christ's matchless name I pray. Amen.